The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. I have about 65 verses to get through in the next 39 minutes and 22 seconds. Uh, As some of you may or may not know, it's a challenge for me to end on time when I've got five verses. So I'm going to be doing quite a bit of reading this morning, and I'm going to try not to get bogged down. But I do want to open with with just uh, a brief story. I sat down to coffee with a friend from Heritage recently, and he shared about a situation that he was walking through with someone close to him. Uh, He shared about uh, how a family member had befriended somebody who was really struggling, a young woman who was struggling with sexual identity issues. And that they'd had her over for dinner and for family activities and, and outings and that sort of a thing. And he was, you know, hoping to be able to equip his daughter with some tools uh, for how to think through this complex issue and, and, and how really to approach this issue. In the modern setting, I think a lot of times uh, we, we tend to look back on the history of the Bible. We tend to think back upon the things that have happened even in the book of Acts and, and, and sort of disconnect them from a modern setting and realize, um, and, or, or we think that, um, well, what they went through is not like what we're going through. But I think what we're going to see today actually is that some of the issues that we face in life about who we love and how we love them, about the mission that God has called us to, will challenge us to step outside of what is comfortable for us. Will challenge us to to push beyond our presuppositions, to push beyond our prejudices, to push beyond our borders, to really actually see the people that, that have been made in the image of God. And maybe that's not the issue that you are facing. For you, it might be that family member who came around for the holidays. The one that you're like, oh gosh, I hope I can just get through the next two hours of opening presents and just getting through this time of being with them because they annoy me to no end. For you, it might be that coworker, right? The one who is so filthy and foul that you just can't hardly stand to be in the room with them for 10 minutes. They, they, they drop language every other word and they're talking about their exploits from the weekend. And you just think, oh gosh, how heathen can you possibly be? It's so opposite of your lifestyle, so opposite of where you live and what you come from that it's almost shocking to your system to, to think about that. Maybe that's the border that God is going to press on. But we're going to ask three questions today. The first one is, how big is God's grace? The second one is, how big is God's kingdom? Or excuse me, how big is God's love? And then the third one, how big is God's kingdom? How big is God's grace? How big is God's love? And how big is God's kingdom? Luke, the author of Acts, starts out in his gospel, his account of the life of Jesus, telling the story of the birth of Jesus. And when Jesus, as a baby boy, is brought into the temple to be dedicated, a man named Simeon is there. And and Simeon prophesies over baby Jesus. And Simeon says that he will be in Luke chapter 2, verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He goes on to confirm this later on in the book of Luke in chapter 3, verse 6, when he says that all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. That means everybody a light to the Gentiles, and all flesh, everyone, shall see the salvation of the Lord. And then the book of Luke concludes with the Great Commission. And in the Great Commission, 
he phrases it like this. He says in, in Luke chapter 24, verse 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, in Jesus' name, to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In other words, God has been very explicit, very clear, that the gospel is for the world. That it's for everyone. You say, well, everyone? I mean, what about Hitler? We like to use him a lot. Like, the gospel's for Hitler? Or ISIS? Or that, that one group that is a social pariah to us? Is the gospel truly for everyone? You know, I think when we ask this question, how big is God's grace? We, we have to look at the story that was shared last week. Lauren shared with us about the story of Saul of Tarsus and how he was an enemy of the kingdom. He was an enemy of Jesus. So much so was he an enemy that he was actually persecuting the church. He gave us an introduction, Lauren gave to us an introduction to this character who will become the dominant figure of the book of Acts. No longer as an enemy of God, but as the friend of God. No longer as, as an adversary to God, but as the servant in submission and surrender to God. And yet... When God came to him, you know what he was going to do? Murder, kill, imprison followers of Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus came and met him on the road. Matter of fact, Saul was not seeking Jesus, didn't want, had rejected Jesus in every way, but God intervened in Saul's life in such a way to, to demonstrate that even the enemies of God are loved by him. To help us to see just how big God's grace is. So answer to the first question, how big is God's grace? So big that God loves, pursues, and saves his enemies. That's what the first part of Acts chapter 9 teaches us. Saul is blinded for three days. He's forced to reconsider everything that he knew about God's plan for Israel and the kingdom, the messianic kingdom that would come. And three days of blindness sharpened his senses in beginning to wade through all of his presuppositions about the nature of the promised messianic kingdom. And it's king. So as he sits there in blindness, Saul is thinking back over like, okay, the, the one I saw on the road who blinded me, he, he said to me, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Right? And now he's having to go, okay, so if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's the king that God promised, if he's the one, if God really did raise him from the dead, well then how does this fit with everything that I have known about the kingdom that is coming? How does this fit with everything that I have assumed about what that kingdom would look like? What, 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 does, this, what does this mean? And as he thinks, all of a sudden, the, the truths that have been there in the scriptures all along begin to rise to the surface. The prophecies about that coming king, about what kind of kingdom it would be, about what it would look like under his rule and under his authority when, when that kingdom came into being. How big is God's grace? It's so big that God loves even his persecutors. He loves, pursues, and saves his enemies. Now, in our story, in chapter 9, beginning at verse 32, the narrative changes back once again to Peter, who's another prominent figure in the history of the church. As we're about to see, King Jesus, the king of this messianic kingdom, 
is working in many different ways to continue to bring the good news about his kingdom to the world. And he's going to do it by leading Peter, even though Peter doesn't know he's being led. I love this. You're going to see this unfold, but one of the things that I absolutely love about the way that God does things is, is, is you think you're just sort of existing. You're just in the job that you're in or in the family that you're in or in the neighborhood that you're in for, for really no reason whatsoever. You're just sort of here by default without a choice in the matter. And while that might be true on one level, what you don't see or don't realize is that day in and day out, there are handfuls of God's purpose for where you are. That God is leading through the mundane. A lot of times we're like, oh God, I, I want some sign. I want some miracle. I want something to like direct me, show me, teach me how, where I can be in your will. And you don't realize that you're actually in the will of God right where you are. <laughs> so, we pick it up in verse 32. Now, we, we read last week in verse 31 that the church, after Saul being saved, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The church continues to grow. Now, verse 32, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now, Jerusalem uh, was sort of the centerpiece of Israel. As the gospel began to spread because of persecution, churches began to pop up in other cities all throughout. In the area of Galilee, even in Samaria, Samaria you'll remember that uh, that Philip was doing work in Samaria and uh, that, that the church was beginning to multiply and grow in that place. And so Peter, as a disciple of Jesus, follows the pattern of Jesus and begins to go out to these places where churches are spontaneously popping up by the Holy Spirit. It's like God just took the seed of the gospel and just flung it across Israel. And now Peter is coming behind to sort of tend what is there and, and to fill in information to help people understand the nature and the work of the kingdom. But Peter doesn't have all the pieces either, as we'll see. So he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now Lydda is on the way to the coast from Jerusalem. It's about 25 miles outside of uh, Jerusalem. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So Peter's making his way, right? He gets to Lydda which is 25 miles away from Jerusalem towards the coast, about 10 miles from Joppa, which is where Peter will end up here in just a little bit. And as he's making his way through the city, he comes across this man who's paralyzed. And G, uh, Peter, knowing the pattern of Jesus, seeing that Jesus cared about people who were in that situation, also having seen Jesus raise up people who were in a paralytic state, he says, Jesus hasn't left. He's still here. He can still do things. So Peter, very matter-of-factly, very plainly, he, he just looks at this guy and he says, Jesus Christ heals you. Now get up and make your bed. <laughs> can you imagine that? Think about how awesome that is. Here's this guy. He's been paralyzed not just for like a couple of days or a couple of months. Eight years this man has been down. Unable to move. Being cared for by others. And at the word, at the name, at the authority of Jesus Christ, the man stands up and begins to make his bed. 
Now notice the response of the people around them. After he immediately arose, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. You have to remember something. Now, now I, I think this is really important. This is critical because even right now, there's been a controversy with the church out of Reading. I'm not sure whether or not you're aware of this, where their worship leader, one of their worship leaders, had a child that died uh, here uh, a few weeks back. And they began to pray for resurrection from the dead for this child. And it launched a big controversy, and people are like, hey, you guys are not embracing um, the, the reality, and, and you're preventing the family from grieving and the, the church from grieving. You're, you're praying for resurrection. That resurrection is not going to happen, even up to days after, while the body of this young child, painfully so, was, was in the morgue. They were still praying and asking God, uh, to resurrect this baby from the dead. Now, on the one hand, we say, yeah, man, that doesn't seem healthy because if God doesn't raise him and you've been praying, then maybe God didn't answer your prayers and what does that say to the world and, you know, all of these things. And then on the other hand, you say, oh, how many of us have faith to say, God, would you raise the dead? It challenges us in a lot of ways as well. But I think that there's a big mistake in the way that we think about the miraculous things that God does at times. And that is that we think that, it, that God does miracles for our good, although our good is a side benefit of miracles. The miracles that take place in the Bible, every single one of them, are to point to the messianic kingdom of Jesus. When he heals a paralytic, when he raises the dead, when he opens the eyes of the blind in the Gospels or in the book of Acts, when a demoniac is set free, it is always to validate and verify the work of the kingdom of God and to point people to the Messiah. James warns us about this. He says, man... Sometimes you don't get what you ask for because you ask amiss. You ask so that you would spend it on your own desires, right? You, you want prayers for your own purposes rather than for the purposes of God, for the kingdom of God. You see, as Peter is preaching in areas outside of Jerusalem, as the gospel is going out, out into now Hellenistic areas, that is places where there is a large Greek influence. The people are still Jewish largely, but there's a large Greek influence. Now the gospel is reaching into them and, and, and the question is, is like, does the kingdom stretch to people who are kind of Jews? Does it stretch to them? And Peter, in his preaching and in this miraculous sign right now, is saying, yes, the kingdom stretches to them. And it happens again in the next few verses, in verse 36. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Now, for any of you who have ever been called a Dorcas, I just want you to know that the, the Greek word here means gazelle. So that just means you're beautiful. So tuck that one away. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men out to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Joppa is about 10 minutes, or 10 miles, excuse me, away from Lydda. And hearing that Peter was close by, they sent some messengers over to come get him. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows stood, all the widows, excuse me, stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. 
And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and here it is again, many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, Peter travels from Lydda to Joppa where he hears about Dorcas. Uh, Joppa is a seaport on the Mediterranean. And it, it, it's significant for a number of reasons. One, uh, because of its location and proximity to Caesarea, which we'll uh, again get to in, in just a little bit. But also because of its history. You see, Joppa was the city where, uh, where Jonah fled from to go to Tarshish. Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah was called by God to go and minister to Gentiles, to bring the good news that God would forgive the Ninevites who were the enemies of Israel at that time. And Jonah had this prejudice. He had this, this thought in his mind. He's like, man, I, how can I preach salvation to the Ninevites so that God would spare them his judgment when what I really want is for God to judge the Ninevites for what they've done. And so he finds a boat at Joppa and sails away to Tarshish, or tries to, and in the process, God creates a sort of divinely appointed U-turn, barfs him up on the beach, sends him back to Nineveh. When he gets to Nineveh, he goes in and he preaches this half-hearted message. It's like, it's not, even, it's not even a real attempt to really preach to the people. He's like, 40 days, and then you're dead. Right? That's it. That's the message he brings. 40 days, and you're dead. Part of him is hoping that they will, in fact, delay for 40 days. Now, the evidence of that is that when the Ninevites repent and turn to the Lord, Jonah throws a tissy. He, he sits down on the side of a mountain and just starts complaining to God. He's like, I knew you would do this. I knew it. I knew that you were gracious and forgiving. I knew you would save these people. That's why I didn't want to come here. Jonah was, was not a great prophet. <laughs> Why? Because he didn't want the things that God wanted. God wanted to save his enemies. And so, here's Peter. In the very city where God had sent somebody to go and preach to the Gentiles... And it's happening all over again. <laughs> Here is Peter in this place. Peter once again comes across this body. She's been dead. Peter again is reminded of something that took place in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 5, we have this story about this young girl who had died there were people mourning and grieving, and Jesus takes them and puts them outside. And then he comes in and he says, Talitha Kumai, or little girl, damsel, arise. Right? Here, Peter says, Tabitha Kumai. <laughs> Tabitha, that was her name. Get up. Same thing he heard Jesus saying, right? He's following in the exact same footsteps of Jesus. He said, Jesus did it. Jesus is here. Jesus can still do stuff. And the little girl, or excuse me, and the woman, Lydda, gets up. Now, people outside are wearing her tunics and they're mourning. And, 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 and Peter hasn't touched the body because, according to Jewish custom, if it wasn't a, a near relative, you couldn't touch a dead body and still be clean. So he's still carrying the Jewish customs. He doesn't touch her. But when she's alive again, he reaches out his hand and says, hey, come on up, right? Verse 41, he gave her his hand and raised her up and then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And once again, it's demonstrated 
that God cares about those who are borderline, who are kind of Jews, kind of in, in a, a place of submission and surrender to God. And so at that moment then, Peter begins to stay in Joppa and there's one little verse there that's the transition verse from chapter 9 to chapter 10, and that's this. He stayed with one Simon, a tanner. Now, though that may not seem significant to us, we have to understand that, that Peter staying in a tanner's house would be very taboo. For him to do that, because Jews considered dead animals to be unclean, for him to stay there and, and to be at the house of a tanner meant that he would be around these unclean animals and that he would be made ceremonially unclean. And so it was, it was very taboo for him to stay there. While he's there, at the same time, God is working in another town just to the north in a place called Caesarea. Now, I know we're holding lots of details. I promise you, it's all gonna coalesce here. To the north, in a town called Caesarea, which is a resort town, uh, there is a man named Cornelius. We read about him in, in verse one of chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So here's this man. The Bible says he's a devout man. He's described as a God-fearer. And what that simply meant was that it was somebody who had not actually converted to Judaism. They hadn't gone through the rites of circumcision. They had not uh, entered into the covenant uh, of uh, people of Israel. But they still believed in Yahweh as God. Now, here's a, this is a really interesting case because here's a guy who is unregenerate. He does not have the Holy Spirit. He, he is not a person who is, um, who is made new by the Holy Spirit at this point, and yet he fears and loves God. And, and as a matter of fact, he, he does things in honor to God. The Bible says that he was a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. I want to pause here for just one brief second. One of the things that I think is tragic about being a believer is that a lot of times it's, it's like we're hesitant to acknowledge the good that the world does. I don't know why that is. You know, there are, there are doctors who are not believers who do good in the world. They go across borders into war-torn areas, care for kids, and in doing so, they are reflecting and bearing the image of God in an unbelieving, unregenerate state. There are, there are moms who love their babies and raise them up and nurture and care for them. And for whatever reason, it's, it's like... It's like we as believers sometimes just can't like look at the good that the world does and say, that's really good. You right now are in harmony with the way that God has made you. And it's honoring to God even if you reject him. Even if you don't desire him. The good that you do is reflective of the heart that God has placed in you, the, the divine image that you bear, the love that you have for humani humanity is all reflective of the God who made us in the first place. Man, there are a ton of organizations and people and human humanitarian uh, nonprofits 
that are doing great, great things in the world. And I, I think sometimes we're embarrassed to partner with or to support those things if it doesn't have the Christian label. And I would just encourage you, if there's good being done, if the good being done is not in the name of the Lord, it's good being done. We should celebrate it. Amen? Now, if it comes to our resources, if we can do good in the name of the Lord, I think we should place priority on that, right? Doing good in the name of the Lord. But we should be celebrating all the good that is being done regardless. Well, that's a total side note. But here, God acknowledges the good that he's done. He says, you know, this has come up before me as a memorial. God says, I, I love that. Your, your prayers, your almsgiving, your generosity, your love, it comes up before me. It's like incense off the altar. I love what you have done. And it appears from the text that he is responding to this unbelieving or unregenerate, I shouldn't say unbelieving, this unregenerate person's sacrifice. He says, now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants, a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to him, he sent them to Joppa. Now the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. I, I can relate to that. Sometimes when you're hungry, you go sort of catatonic, right? Uh, but here's Peter. He's up on the housetop. You know, they have flat roofs with porches up on the top of their houses in the Middle East. And he's up there probably looking out at the ocean. His stomach is rumbling. And while he's there, he falls into a trance and is given a vision. Verse 11, and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. This is probably, this should be the theme verse for every outdoorsman in the Pacific Northwest. It should be on like real tree camo t-shirts and now Peter's response uh, by, by no means Lord for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So he sees all these animals. Some of them are forbidden to eat. And God's command comes to him, rise, Pete, kill, and eat. Rise, Pete, kill, and eat. That should be our chance, right? <laughs> rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And, and Peter responds by saying, no, I, I can't do that. I, I'm a Jew. <laughs> you know, Jews don't do that. We don't eat unclean stuff. Although the bacon looks tasty, I'm sure the camel would be delightful. I'm not allowed to eat that. And so I, I God, you made the rules. I, I, I can't do that. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times. And then the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now three seems to be the magic number for Peter to recognize things. You remember three times he denied the Lord and three times Jesus restored him. And now three times the Lord is coming to him again and saying, I want you to do something here. I'm gonna change things. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, now remember, Cornelius is up to the north, 
in Caesarea, a resort town, Roman-controlled city. It's a very fancy place to be. Sends his servants and a, an armed guard down to come get Peter. So while Peter is having this vision, the men arrive at that exact moment from Cornelius' house. The men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, verse 18, and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? So while Peter's thinking about what does this mean, then the Spirit comes to him and says, hey, I've got direct application. There's some people here that want to talk to you. I've sent them. You need to talk to them. So he comes down and says, what's up? Um, verse 22, and they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guests. And the next day, he arose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So now there's some Gentiles now who are seeking this Jewish minister of the gospel to come up to this Gentile house. So there's other Jewish brothers who are like, eh, we better go with him and see what's going to happen here. And on the following day, verse 24, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, said, stand up. I too am a man. So Peter's like, hey, don't, don't worship me. I know God sent me here, but I'm just, a, I'm just a guy. I'm just a dude. Verse 27, and he talked with him, and he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So Peter's starting to connect the dots of what he saw in the vision to what's happening here. He's not supposed to mix it up with these other nations, but God is telling him, don't call common or unclean what I have cleansed. So when I was sent for, uh, when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask you then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house and at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Now, how often is it that somebody comes and gets you, brings them over to their house, has gathered a big crowd and says, hey, will you tell us about Jesus? How often does that happen? This is a divinely inspired appointment from God. So Peter opened his mouth and he said, verse 34, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Man, that verse right there, listen, that verse should be highlighted, underlined, starred, circled. Maybe, you know, bright explosions coming out from around it. I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Here's what he's saying. Faith and the transformed life are the evidence of God's working. That's what makes people right. Faith, they fear him, they trust him, they believe who he is. And the transformed life, they obey his laws. They obey who he is. He says, verse 36, as for the word that he sent to Israel... 
preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Now, he's about to give the explanation of why this can be true, that people who are not a part of the covenant people of God can now be included into the good news of the gospel and the kingdom of God. So here's the reasoning that he gives. He says, you, you guys all know uh, about the preaching of good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, probably uh, referencing Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 to 23, where it says that anybody who was hanged on a tree was cursed. And, and, and really communicating the idea that, that Jesus absorbed the curse so that sinners might be made free or forgiven. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the, all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Key, key part of the gospel, we, we sat down with him, we ate food with him, we, we, we drank with him. Jesus was here in bodily form. He was resurrected. It wasn't like we just had a glimpse of him around a corner in a glowing robe. It wasn't just like he floated through a wall and then disappeared again. We sat and had a meal with the resurrected Jesus. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The reason the Gentiles can come in is because the sacrifice that Jesus made is not just for Israel. It's for everyone. Now, Peter's, all he's doing, he's just explaining the gospel, right? He's just talking about what Jesus did. Is he trying to sell anything? Do you hear like the, the car salesman pitch? Excuse me, sir, can I tell you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? He's just saying, look, you guys know already what happened. Like Jesus was here and he did a lot of awesome stuff and God was with him. Then they killed him. But then he rose from the dead. We, we had a meal with him. And we, he was walking around. He was raised from the dead, resurrected before our very eyes. And, and, and we learned through that, that that forgiveness of sins was open to everyone through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. There's no sale. He's not trying to close the deal. He's proclaiming what Jesus did. And God is meeting those that believe with the Holy Spirit. And, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Listen. How big is God's grace? He saves even his enemies. How big is God's love? A love so big that even though Peter, he's not even supposed to hang out with the Gentiles. He's not even supposed to be there. God says, okay, well, let's get you a little closer to the Gentiles. Let's move you to Lydda. Oh, while you're in Lydda, hey, I got this little errand for you over here in Joppa. Oh, while you're in Joppa, let me give you a little vision for what I'm doing over here in Caesarea. 
And then God moves him up the coastline, up to Caesarea. When he gets there, there's a crowd of Gentiles waiting for him. So he's saying, hey, uh, we heard you had a message from God. Could you, could you tell us what that message is? He's like, I only got one message. I met Jesus. He did a lot of cool stuff. People killed him. He was raised from the dead. Our sins are forgiven. <laughs> and then, boom, the Holy Spirit falls on all the people there when they just simply hear the message. And they begin to speak in tongues just like it happened in Acts chapter 2. And all of a sudden, Peter's like, hey, but it, I, th I thought that this was just for the Jews. I thought it was just... God gave the Holy Spirit to these guys just like he did to us guys. What's going on here? It's a, it's a gospel that's so big that it's for everyone. It's, God, it's a gospel that is so expansive that it's open for anyone. It's big enough for every repentant sinner. This is why the book of Revelation in chapter 22 ends with an invitation. I just want to read it to you. Chapter 22, very last chapter of the Bible, in verses 16 and 17, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let everyone who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take of the water of life without price, come. The invitation is to everyone. How big is the kingdom? It's big enough for every repentant sinner. And why is this on my heart to share? Over the holidays, I had my own sort of trial, if you will. Uh, we were hanging out with friends and family and loved ones, and some of them are a little bit rough around the edges. It's not the way that I'm used to living, right? Some of them are smoking weed and having way too much to drink. And it's just rowdy, right? If you have family who are unbelievers... You, you know how rowdy it can get. But I'm around them and I'm just like, like oh gosh. <laughs> uh, I feel kind of like on defense a little bit, like not sure, like, okay, am, am I a participant in this? Or, or is, this like a, is this like a thing that I should be distancing myself from? Is my witness better in saying, guys, I can't be around you because you're all acting like idiots? Or is my witness better to say, I love you no matter how you come? Well, like, I'm stuck in that tension, right? In, in that moment. And as the week went on, we continued to hang out, went out to dinner with uh, some of them. And while we're out, uh, one of the wives began to open up and share her story about trouble in her marriage and difficulty in, uh, in her life. And all of a sudden, I, I began to see from a different angle the same people. On one hand, I was, I was judging them and like, oh gosh, this is just icky. What's happening is icky, right? But then all of a sudden, as the, through relationship began to open up, I had an opportunity to talk about God's grace about healing, about forgiveness. And what I, sat, what I found is that all the behaviors that I saw were actually coping mechanisms for the wounds that they carried in life. And that God had called me to bring in the gospel, whether or not it is effective, whether or not it will ultimately lead to salvation, I have no idea. That's God's territory. My job's just to tell the story, right? But God loves his enemies. My admonition to you is to live like missionaries. 
Invite the non-binary girl over for dinner. Let her see the love of Christ displayed through the way that you love your family. Make friends with the guy who's got a foul mouth at work. Sit with him at break. Ask him his story. Tell me about your life. Where do you come from? Find out about who he is because he's made in, created in the image of God. Look past all the sin. Don't excuse it. Look past it to see the image of God bared upon the lives of the people around us. You see, this is the tension that we live in as believers. And as Mitch and the crew come up to lead us in worship as we close, this is the tension we live in as believers. We are to be salt and light. Jesus, in praying for his disciples, he said, God, don't take them out of the world. Leave them in the world. Leave them here. Don't, don't remove them. You see, we live in this tension where, where we're supposed to have adaptation. We, we, we can permeate every culture, and yet there's also confrontation. Sin is still sin. There's participation in the world, and yet separation from the world. We are to be in the world and not of the world. We're, we're not to be conformed, and yet at the same time, we're to become all things to all men. We're to be indigenous and to be pilgrims. We're to be citizens and we're to be missionaries. The gospel calls us to love a lost and dying world. And with God, there is no partiality. May we be faithful to follow where he leads us. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the challenge that comes from your word today. That reminds us that the gospel is not just good news for us. Thank you for that. the gospel is good news for the world that your plan is not just to save a few but to save all those who will come make us faithful messengers protect us on the one hand from being car salesmen who use trickery and try and entrap people and forms of logic, but make us faithful heralds who constantly, fanatically talk about the gospel and its implications, who talk about the resurrected Savior and proclaim what he has done without shyness and without shame. May we be citizens and pilgrims. May we be saints missionaries. Shape us by your word, Lord. Train us to be disciples that bear the good news of the gospel well. We ask this in the name and for the glory of your Son.